0: Um, so let's uh let's start with prayer and and we'll jump into psalm one nineteen we're going to be looking at verses eighty nine to ninety six today as you can see on your notes so let's pray and and we'll begin god thanks for your grace God thanks for your mercy towards us that that you speak to us and as we're celebrating tonight in in this stanza that we get to look at that you tell us what you're like. That we don't have to wonder, we don't have to guess. You've revealed yourself to us in your word. And so I pray that our time together would be a celebration of that, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, stirring us up to delight in your law, that we see you in your law. And so give us grace as we study during this time. Use this time for your glory help us to see you more clearly. Amen. Well, welcome to the fourth and final week in Psalm 119. It's been um, a great ride for me going through uh, going through Psalm 119. I was talking to, to Bill before we started. I needed this class desperately. And um, it's nice when you get to choose what you're going to teach on, that you can choose stuff that um, is pertinent to your life. And so good for me to be walking through this psalm that's a, a consistent challenge for us to delight in God's word. And so thank you for coming along for this ride. And if you've been here with us for the past three weeks, and, and now we're on week four, in our first week together we talked about the psalmist's affections for God's word. And we focused on that in verses 161 to 168. In our second week together, we talked about the psalmist's resolve to keep God's word. We looked at verses 57 to 64. We were studying uh, the actions of the psalmist in seeking to live out what God's word had called him to. And then last week, we were talking about the benefits the psalmist receives from God's word. We were looking at verses 49 to 56. And along the way, as we've been looking at these different stanzas, we've met various challenges. The sheer magnitude of Psalm 119 can be a hurdle to studying this chapter. It's big. It's hard to get our hands around it. It's hard to know where to gain benefit from this chapter. But Psalm 119 is an extended meditation. It's an extended celebration of the fact that God has spoken to us in his word. God has spoken to us in his word. That the God who created the heavens and the earth by speaking them into existence has spoken to us. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. We have his words in a book that we can read and understand and meditate on and talk to other people about. This poetic epic extends over 22 stanzas, 176 verses. And so we've chosen to meet this challenge of how do we get our arms around Psalm 119 by just picking four stanzas that we're going to study. And then we've looked at these four themes the psalmist's affections, the psalmist's resolve, the benefits the psalmist receives from God's word. And then what we're going to be focusing on tonight God's heart revealed in God's word. God's heart revealed. In God's Word. So to return to this image that we began the class with, by its size alone, Psalm 119 rises above the rest of the Psalms and really the rest of Scripture. It's like this massive snow-capped mountain. It towers above everything that surrounds it. It is big. And in this study, we've chosen to just take one trail up the mountain, look at a few vistas along the way, and see what we can see. So the sheer magnitude of this has been a challenge, but also the beauty and the diversity of this psalm can also be seen as an invitation to come here again and again and again and again, to keep hiking up this mountain, to keep seeing new vistas as you take new trails, to be stirred up again and again to new wonders and new awe that God has spoken to us. And that leads us to another challenge we face in studying Psalm 119 keeping our infe- affections engaged, not our infections, keeping our affections engaged. I will be the first to admit that the size of this psalm and the format of this class could lend to, this is kind of an academic setting. This is a classroom. We're sitting here for 45 minutes talking about this. Easily, we could start to become disengaged with what we find in this psalm. We could focus on what we're learning. We could focus on actions that the psalmist is calling us to, and we could lose the plot of Psalm 119 as we do this. Hopefully, the beautiful diversity... The poetic composition of this psalm is constantly calling us back to heightened affections for God and his word. That's what the psalmist is trying to do. So let this serve as a reminder as we're starting in our last week that as great as renewed minds and God-pleasing actions are, that is not the primary goal of the psalmist here. The primary goal of the psalmist in Psalm 119 is engaged affections So Psalm 119 does not primarily say your law is my textbook for study and it does not primarily say your law is my guidebook for life. Those things are great and they have their place in God's word but that's not what Psalm 119 is saying primarily. Psalm 119 says your law is my delight. Let's delight in God's word together. One important way that Psalm 119 calls us to do this is is by reminding us that God's word is a personal word. God's word is a personal word. This is another challenge that we face in studying Psalm 119 and a challenge that we're going to be addressing tonight specifically from verses 89 to 96. God's word is a personal, relational word spoken by the gracious, humble, loving creator of the universe to those beloved beings he created in his image. His words to us. To say it another way, a lot of our study has been occupied with the fact that God has spoken in his word. Tonight, we're going to be focusing on God has spoken to us in his word. It's personal. God's word is a personal, relational word from the greatest being in the universe. The being who created the universe. His word to his creation. The personal, relational nature of God's word that's highlighted in this stanza that we're gonna be looking at tonight is wonderfully summarized. If you look at verse 94, I am yours, save me. This cry from the psalmist for salvation from his God, it's personal. So what could lead the psalmist to such a cry of intimacy and dependence on God? God's heart revealed in God's word. God's character revealed in God's word. What God is like, who he is. That's what leads the psalmist to this point. God's heart revealed in Psalm one nineteen eighty nine to 96. So let's read these verses and we'll walk through them one by one. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment, Is exceedingly broad. So let's start by looking at verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word is firmly fixed. The psalmist begins by showing the duration of time that God's word is fixed, simply saying forever. And by putting this word forever at the beginning of the sentence, the psalmist is breaking typical Hebrew word order. This is not where this word goes, and he puts it there anyways. He's emphasizing this duration that God's word is permanent. He's emphasizing the permanence of God's fixed word. It isn't fixed for a certain time or a certain season. It is firmly fixed forever. Not even such a cataclysmic, groundbreaking, earth-shaking event like the coming of God's Messiah could unfix God's word if you remember during the earthly ministry of Jesus, there was this debate raging about whether Jesus was coming in and he's sweeping the law away. He's pushing the prophets to the side. He's doing something completely new. This is how Jesus responds to that in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five seventeen and following. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. As long as the created universe stands, so will God's word. That is permanence. God's word is firmly fixed forever. But the psalmist continues on beyond this point. Not only is God's word firmly fixed forever, it is firmly fixed in the heavens. So he's not only commenting on the duration of time that God's word is fixed, he's also giving a physical location in which God's word is fixed. Now, he's not saying it's actually in the heavens, that's where you can go into space and find God's word. He's using this as imagery. He's calling the reader of the poem, he's calling us to go outside, look into the night sky and find some comparison between what you're seeing up in the sky and God's word. As we gaze into the night sky, we see this incredibly intricate dance of the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars playing out before our eyes as it's going through its motions. This is an intricate dance that we can observe and predict to the best of our ability, but this is an intricate dance that is beyond our grasp and out of our control. It's beyond us. So by talking about God's word being firmly fixed in the heavens, He's reminding us, he's reminding his readers, as human, ble- as human beings, we are placed under God's word, not over it. We're placed under God's word, not over it. And he's removing God's word from the realm of the terrestrial, from the realm of the things that we see around us. Not because God's word is unconcerned with those things. It certainly is. God's word talks about lots of things that we deal with in an everyday basis. He removes God's word from the realm of the terrestrial because he's highlighting its unchanging nature. It doesn't change. As human beings, we are keenly aware of the topsy turvy nature of our existence. We never know what the next day is going to hold. We never know what we're going to face. We're always caught off guard by the storms of life. But as we experience these things, love and loss, joy and pain, war and peace, plenty and want, the heavens continue to move through their motions unchanged. He's drawing a comparison between those and God's word. Beyond our grasp, free from the freewheeling change of our world, God's word is firmly fixed. It is permanent It is unchanging. It reflects the character of the God who authored it. Just like when we go outside and look up at the night sky as difficult as it is in Pinellas County, can't really see much, it reflects the character of the God who made it. The God who was and is and is to come. The God who's the same yesterday and today and forever. I want to caution us that We could get the feeling that what the psalmist is trying to invoke with this verse is that God and his word are cold and distant and beyond our reach. He's not conveying that. He's conveying that God's word is stable. God's word is stable, they are fixed and permanent and unchanging. They're completely unlike much of what we experience on a daily basis, where tomorrow up might be down and down might be up. God's word is not like that. God's word is fixed in the heavens forever. It's above us and beyond our grasp and stable beyond the ever changing circumstances of our world. We could no more remove God's word from its place than reach into the night sky and pluck Orion's belt from the sky. We can't do that. And we can't do that with God's word either. Praise God that in his word, he offers us stability unlike anything we can find in our world. Your faithfulness endures to all generations, verse 90. You have established the earth and it stands fast. You see this movement in verse 90 from talking about God's word to talking about God himself. And he's moving from talking about the heavens to talking about the earth. This is one of the handful of verses, interestingly enough, if you read through Psalm 119, one of the handful of verses, maybe six or seven, in the entire Psalm, 176 verses that don't mention God's word or a synonym for God's word explicitly. But I'd venture to say he's got a good reason for doing that. It's because he's talking about God himself. He stops talking about God's word and he talks about God himself. This verse is personal. So whereas verse 89 could leave the reader with this feeling that yes, God's word is fixed and permanent and unchanging, but it's up there somewhere out of my grasp, beyond my control, above my head, what bearing does it have on my life? Verse 90 offers a response to that that says, no, that's not what I'm saying about God and his word. Yes, God's word is fixed and permanent and unchanging, but it is also personal. It's a personal word from a personal God who is faithful from generation to generation of his people. The psalmist is drawing a comparison between God's faithfulness and the creation of the earth. God not only created the earth, he sustains it. He not only spoke the world into existence, he upholds it by his word of power. So from our own experience, the rain waters our crops. The earth continues to bring forth food. Trees produce oxygen for us to breathe. This is testifying God is upholding his world. It continues to go forward from generation to generation. God sustains our world. And in the same way that God upholds the earth itself, he upholds his promises to his people from generation to generation. God not only spoke promises of old to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, the apostles, he is faithful to uphold those promises from generation to generation. And so we can ask ourselves, are God's promises still good for today? Do these words spoken so long ago to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, the prophets, the apostles, do they mean anything for us as God's people in 2017? we need to go outside and ask ourselves, are crops still being produced? Are trees still producing oxygen? Is rain still falling on the earth? As surely as God is faithful to uphold his creation, he upholds his promises. He is faithful to all generations. I love this quote from William Cowper. He says this about Psalm 119.90. Creation is as the mother, And providence the nurse, which preserves all the works of God. God is not like man. For man, when he's made a work, can't maintain it. He builds a ship and can't save it from shipwreck. He edifies a house, but can't keep it from decay. It is otherwise with God. We daily see his conserving power, upholding his creatures, which should confirm for us that he will not cast us off nor suffer us to perish if we so depend upon him and give him glory as our creator, conserver, and redeemer. God is not like man. It is otherwise with God. He creates and he sustains. Yes, God's word is fixed and permanent and unchanging, but it is also for you if you're one of his people through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, God is eternal and unchanging and wholly different from us, but he is also personal and faithful to his people. Praise God that he is. Verse 91 says, by your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. These three verses, as you're reading through them and actually thinking about what they're saying, could result in like a whiplash effect if you're reading through this. He snaps the focus of his poem from the personal God in verse 90 to the sovereign God in verse 91. And if you go all the way back to 89, he moves from the heavens to the earth, from the personal and faithful God to the sovereign master over everything. He's going back and forth. And really, this effect that could be dizzying and disorientating for us as readers, it's totally fitting. Because what he's trying to do is faithfully convey the character of the God who created and sustains the universe in a poem how do you do that? How do you do that? How can he sum up the perfections of the triune God in the language of men? How is that possible? Well, ultimately he's inspired by God's Holy Spirit. So he can produce words that are true and good and faithful and right, but they are mere shadows of the glory that he's trying to convey here. They're shadows. So these words, as we read them, are simultaneously able to produce awe and wonder and humility in us, but also leave us longing to see the God who's presented here face to face. It does both. Verse 91 tells us, God is the sovereign master of everything. The sovereign master of everything. By your appointment, they stand this day. It could also be translated by your rules, they stand this day. So what this is the psalmist referring to, everything that he's talked about in verses 89 and 90, the heavens and the earth and everything contained in them from God's throne, seated in power, God speaks and everything is. By the laws of nature that he sets in place, when God spoke the universe into existence, the stars continue their courses, the sun continues to rise, the oceans are kept to their boundaries, the rains continue to fall, the plants continue to grow, the animals are sustained in their web of existence, the birds continue to sing their master's praise by God's word. But also at God's word, the sun can freeze in the sky It can darken like at midnight. Oceans can flood the earth in judgment or be calmed with a word. Rains can cease for years and be restored in an instant. God can shut the mouths of a lion and he can use a donkey as a prophet if he needs to. So this image in verse 91 is of God as the sovereign master of everything, sitting on his throne, ruling by divine fiat, whatever he speaks is. So last week, you you remember in verse 49, the psalmist considered himself God's servant. Remember your word to your servant in which you've made me hope. God's not only sovereign over men and women created in his image, he's sovereign over all things. For all things are your servants. Charles Spurgeon comments, no Adam escapes his rule, no world avoids his government from the smallest building block of the universe to the largest star, everything are God's servants. And just like God's word, God is unchanging and per- permanent. He provides stability for his people in the midst of a constantly changing world. God's faithful to his people. He upholds his promises from one generation to the next But Psalm 119.91 adds to this already glorious picture of the character of God saying, God is powerful and powerful beyond our wildest imagination. This verse is a much needed reminder for us. We live in a world that relishes displays of power. We need to be reminded occasionally what true power looks like. True power is the God who rules the universe by his word. True power is the God who sits on his throne and speaks and whatever he says happens. This is power that's unbelievably terrifying in its might, if you think about it. But it's also unbelievably terrific in its application. In one sense, verses 89 to 90 should leave us feeling small and afraid and weak and powerless because we are those things. But we are also loved and and cared for, and sustained, and promised things beyond what we deserve, beyond our wildest imaginations. How do we know all this? Because the God who is so powerful that he spoke the universe into existence and upholds the universe by his word of power also speaks to us. Small and afraid and weak and powerless as we are, God speaks to us in his word, and he tells us how that power is applied for us. This is humility and grace and kindness and mercy and love. This is our God. Terrifying power, but terrifically gracious application for us, his people. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. In verse 92, the psalmist is moving from the realm of the theoretical to the realm of the practical. His musings about God and his word, their permanence and faithfulness and power, these are not the thoughts of an armchair theologian teasing out truths from God's word. These are deeply cherished treasures that have comforted and sustained and delighted the psalmist in the midst of affliction. Affliction. Quite simply, apart from God's word, the psalmist would have perished. If you're keeping track and you've been with us for four weeks, we are now officially four for four in the affliction department. So if you think Psalm 119 is written from this mountaintop, wonderful experience with the Lord, you've got another thing coming. In verse 161, princes persecute the psalmist without cause. In verse 61, the cords of the wicked ensnare the psalmist. In verses 49 to 56, the psalmist speaks of affliction, the insolent deriding him, the wicked, and the house of his sojourning. So not writing from this mountaintop experience. That's just what we've looked at. What sustains the psalmist in the midst of his affliction? God's character revealed in God's word. God's character revealed in God's word. Whether he's facing physical death or facing severe affliction that he's in danger of losing all hope in life, whatever's facing him and we're not sure, the psalmist's delight is in God's word. The psalmist's delight is in God's word. And this changes everything like life from the dead. The psalmist is delighting in God's word and his afflictions because the truths he knows about God from God's word are being pressed into service by the hardships of life. This isn't a time for him to abandon what he knows, the truth that he's learned. Actually, times of affliction are times when the bedrock truths of God's word become the firm foundation we desperately need as rains fall and the floods come. We need these truths. God's permanence and faithfulness and power aren't pleasant sentiments for sunny days. When the very ground seems to be giving way underneath us, we need to know that something is solid and stable to set our feet on. When it seems like God's abandoned us because our experiences are screaming, you're all alone, we need to be reminded God is faithful. He hasn't abandoned us. And when the forces of the world are putting on an impressive display of their strength, we need to remember God rules the world in power. We can delight in these things in affliction. The psalmist delights in God's word and he doesn't perish. In times of affliction, what do you delight in? Where do you find stability and faithfulness and power? Times of affliction aren't times when we abandon the truths that we know from God's word. Times of affliction are when we need these bedrock truths of God's word to become a firm foundation for us to set our feet on. Do you delight in God's word in affliction? And specifically, do you delight in the person who reveals himself there? The God who reveals himself to be unchanging and faithful and sovereign. These are truths to built to weather the fiercest storms of life. I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. Now it's difficult to pick this up in an English translation, but actually verse 93 is a transition in this stanza. Other stanzas in Psalm 119 are mostly held together because they've got the same Hebrew letter to begin each verse. They've got this common theme focusing on God's word, but actually the stanza that we're looking at tonight has a little bit additional structure that stands out. Verses 89 and 93 both begin with the Hebrew word translated forever. This gets lost a little bit in English because it would sound clunky. It would say this, forever I will not forget your precepts. So instead it gets translated, I will never forget your precepts. But it's the same word at the beginning of each verse. So the sentiment is this. In verse 89, God's word is firmly fixed forever in the heavens. So... In verse 93, the psalmist will forever remember God's word. So it's this reintroduction of the word forever that's breaking the stanza in two. So we've got these two halves that could be placed under two different headings. In verses 89 to 92, it discusses the perfections of God and his word. And then in verses 93 to 96, it discusses the psalmist's practical application of these perfections. Putting that in New Testament terms, what we see in New Testament letters, It's this pattern of gospel truth followed by gospel application. The psalmist begins by answering the question, what is true? And then he continues to answer the question, what use is this truth? Why does it matter? So verse 92 has already begun this transition for us between the two sections. It started this task of answering the question, what use is this truth? What does it matter that God is unchanging and faithful and powerful? And so the psalmist has said, I'm able to delight in these truths even in affliction. It kept me from perishing. And then verse 93 is the flip side of the coin. I will never forget your precepts for by them you have given me life. He doesn't perish, he has life. Now we've seen this truth already in our study of verse 50. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The God of the Bible is the life giver. And he gives life to people, even in affliction through his word. The psalmist finds life in God's word because he finds God there. God's word is life giving because we find God there. God not only revealing himself, who he is, and what he's like and what he's done, but also God holding himself out to us in his word. It's important to see that. God's word is not only personal, it's relational because it reveals the God who doesn't just want to give us a list of facts about himself. Yes, we learn lots of things from God and his word, but it reveals the God who says, join my family, become one of my children. I will become your God and you will be my people. So it moves beyond God just saying, I'm like a father. This is who I am. This is what I do. He invites us into his family. It's relational. It's relational. And it goes beyond God just telling us his covenant name. We looked at that last week, Yahweh. He doesn't just tell us his name. He says, if I am your covenant God, you will be my people and I will be your God. Jesus says something along these lines between knowing God and having life in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The psalmist finds life in God's word because he finds God there. He knows God and thus he has life. Verse 94, I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. Verse 94 is this personal response of the psalmist to, God, to the God that's personally revealing himself in this word. Verse 94 is the psalmist's cry in the midst of affliction, but it's also an incredible confession of faith. I love this. So much is contained in these two simple lines. There's a personal plea from the psalmist about his utter devotion to the Lord. This cry for salvation, his faith that God saves, his desire to know and keep God's word, but the implication that this would never be enough. Now, most likely the psalmist is calling for physical salvation in this verse. He's asking to be saved from a very specific situation of affliction that he finds himself in. He's asking to be delivered from hardships. But biblically, there is a close tie between physical deliverance and spiritual salvation. And the psalmist knows that God is fully capable of both. He's looking to God as his savior. God's not only able to deliver him from the wicked who lie in wait to destroy him. We're going to look at that in a minute in verse 95. He's also able to deliver the psalmist from his own wickedness. He can do both. God saves. God saves. The psalmist has sought God's precepts and in God's word he's been confronted by the God who is unchanging and faithful and powerful. The God whose very word causes delight, who gives life and affliction by giving himself in affliction. So what can the psalmist do in response? He utters this heartfelt personal plea to God, a cry of devotion, but also a cry for salvation. A cry that's personal because God is personal. This verse is proof positive that the psalmist practices what he preaches. He actually believes the doctrine that he espouses. The things that he learns about God and his word are actually applicable to his life. All the things that he said in verses 89 to 92 are coming out here. Save me. He not only affirms that all things are your servants. He can confess, I am yours. It's personal. And so this movement from affirmation to confession is absolutely essential because it's the movement from the truths contained here being cold and distant to them being warm and personal and life-giving. Warm and personal and life-giving. Not just abstract truths about God from his word, truths that are applicable to the situation the psalmist finds him in now. I am yours, save me. The author of Psalm 119 has very little interest in us responding to his poem with affirmation. He's got a lot of interest in us responding to his poem with confession. I am yours, save me. Have you been keeping the truths of God's word at arm's length Maybe even in this class, as we've gathered together and there's been lots of information flying at you from Psalm 119 about affections and actions and benefits, lots of lists could be made from from this class. But have these truths welled up inside of you? Have they overflowed to God in a cry of devotion and dependence on him for salvation alone? Can you say to God in response to this message, I am yours, save me? Is it personal? Verse 95 says, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. Here we see the source of the psalmist's affliction, the reason he needs salvation, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. This is a very vivid image. You can picture the psalmist traveling along some deserted highway. All of his enemies are kind of in the ditch around, waiting for him to walk by, to pounce on him, to destroy him. Now, we don't know if if this danger was a physical possibility for the psalmist. He was literally in, uh, in danger of his life. Or if he's just using this to illustrate his feelings of hardship and persecution. There's people that are waiting to pounce on me. But the psalmist finds himself with enemies. And not enemies of his own making. Enemies who oppose the psalmist because of their own wickedness. Enemies intent on destroying the psalmist. Sometimes we can get frustrated that God's word is vague about suffering. We don't know what he was going through. We don't. We want details. We want to know exactly what the author is going through. And we want it for two reasons. Either one, so that we can identify with them and say, okay, they know what I'm going through, so I'll listen to them. Or so we can invalidate what they're saying. And say, they don't know what I'm walking through. It's talking about something else. They don't know. Well, Psalm 119 doesn't give us that opportunity to dismiss what he's saying. It's purposefully vague about what's going on. We learn a little bit. We know that it's personal. He's got these princes, the wicked, the insolent that are pursuing him with hardships. We know there are people causing this pain in his life. And it's clear that his hardships are serious. He talks about these a lot in Psalm 119. But beyond that, we don't even know if he's talking about the same affliction throughout the whole Psalm. We just don't know. In reality, the psalmist's tendency to speak about his difficulties in broad terms is helpful to us because we come along a few thousand years after these were initially composed and allows us to relate to the psalmist's hardships regardless of what he was actually going through. We don't need to know. What we know is God's people now experience suffering in the world and it's not new to us. God's people have always experienced hardships in life whether it's in the psalmist day or ours. Affliction is a common experience of God's people in the world including the experience of God's son during his time in our world. It allows us to relate but it's also helpful because it allows us to focus on his response to these hardships. We don't get caught up and if we've experienced the same thing as him or if he's talking about something different, we get to focus on how he responds. And he says this a number of times. He goes to God's word. Just keeping tally in our four stanzas. In verse 51, he says this, The insolent, utterly deride me. We were talking about this last week. The proud mock me is what he's saying. But I don't turn away from your law. It's verse 51. In verse 61, he says, the cords of the wicked ensnare me. I do not forget your law. In 161, he says, princes persecute me without cause. Is that who he fears? No, my heart stands in awe of your words. So naturally we should be challenged by this. He's going to God's word in affliction. This common human experience, even for God's people Go to God's word in affliction. But we've already been challenged in that way tonight. We've been challenged in that way during the other three weeks in our series. So I wanna take this as an opportunity to challenge us to take others to God's word in their affliction. To take others to God's word in their affliction. The psalmist is encouraging us again and again what to do when we find ourselves in hardship. Go to God in his word. Can that be our reflex with other people? when they come to us with hardships in the midst of the storms of life. Not to inundate others with our own wisdom, our own thoughts about their current predicament, our own take on what they should do. Not to mumble some cliches of comfort because we don't know what else to say, but taking them to God's word. Not looking for answers to their problems necessarily, but focusing on God's word remembering God's word, standing in awe of God's word, considering God's word, delighting in God's word, leading them to the God who reveals himself in his word, making it personal for them, taking them to the Lord through his word. Verse 96 says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. This is a great verse to conclude our study of Psalm 119. I actually decided I definitely had to teach this stanza a few weeks ago. Katie Wilson, I I was sad they weren't here tonight. Katie Wilson uh, read this, the Congregational mic, And I said, I've got to teach on that one. And this verse is a big reason for that. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. The psalmist has considered every good thing in God's creation everything. He affirms that there are lots of good things in God's creation, but he notices one common attribute between everything under the sun. They have limits. They have limits. The image that comes to mind, Jerry was reading from Ecclesiastes this morning, but it's of the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. He doesn't deny himself anything under the sun. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 2.10, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. What was the preacher's conclusion after all of this searching? I considered that all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He doesn't just pursue pleasure, but also wisdom and success. And what he's saying is to all of these things, there is a limit. There comes a point with every good thing in the earth. And I challenge you to think of one that breaks this. Every good thing in the earth, not only of just diminishing returns, like it's not as fulfilling as it used to be, not just that, but of vanity and emptiness and sin. There is a limit to every good thing on the earth. There's a limit to all perfection, but this is not so with God's word. The English translation doesn't really do justice here. What it could say is, your commandment is boundless. No limitations. The limits that inevitably apply to every other good thing under the sun the diminishing returns of time and energy spent in every other way, the vanity, the emptiness, the sin that inevitably comes with every other thing under the sun, these things don't apply to God and his word. They don't. To all perfections, I have seen a limit, but not to this perfection. That's what the psalmist is saying. The perfect God, perfectly revealing himself through his son in his word to the limits of the perfections of our world drive you to God's perfections perfections that have no limit keep in mind that the psalmist is talking about the good things of this life that's why he's calling them perfections he's talking about success in your job he's talking about healthy relationships he's talking about a biblical marriage he's talking about your ideal house he's talking about your favorite restaurant he's talking about your dream vacation The psalmist has spent a lot of time saying that God's word is good in hardship and affliction. Now he's talking about the very best that life has to offer. And he's saying those things are limited. We know this by experience. We know that these things never quite live up to what we had hoped. We know that they offer diminishing returns after a certain point. But this is not so with God. Can you say this with the psalmist? Our world, both believers and unbelievers, desperately need to hear these words from us. That as great as these things are, success in your job and healthy relationships, and a biblical marriage, and your dream house, and delightful food and relaxing vacations, those things are all wonderful and good, but they have limits. We need to acknowledge those limits. And we need to point people to the God who has none. As good as those things might be, they fall woefully short of the perfections of God revealed to us in God's word. Can we point people there? Well, I'd venture to guess that this is why the psalmist didn't write 176 verses about anything else. (laughs) Of all the wonderful things he could have chosen to write about, he chose the most wonderful. God speaks to us in his word. God speaks to us in his word. He tells us what he's like. He tells us what he's done. He makes promises to us. He tells us how to live in the universe that he made. He doesn't leave us in silence. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He doesn't leave us alone. He speaks. He tells us that he's unchanging like the stars in the sky. He tells us he's faithful like the ground beneath our feet. He tells us he's strong and rules over everything by his word. He tells us that life is found in him and nowhere else. He tells us to entrust ourselves to him and that he will save us. He tells us where to look when the wicked lie and wait for us. He tells us where to turn when the perfections of life have reached their limits. But he speaks to us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that marvelous and awe-inspiring and humbling and challenging and something for us to delight in? That's why he's writing 176 verses, a poem about this. I hope that your thinking has been renewed during our time together. I hope your actions have been more conformed to the pattern of God's word, but even more than those things. I hope that God has used this time to allow you to delight in his word. That you would go forward with a renewed perspective on God's word. New reasons for being awed that God speaks to us in a book. I hope this encourages further study in this psalm. We covered a very little portion of this. That you would take other trails up this massive mountain. That you would encounter other beautiful vistas along the way that we didn't get to stop at but mostly that you would leave this class proclaiming your law is my delight. Let's pray. God, you are gracious to us and we need to look no further to think about how you've been gracious to us than to see that you speak. You are there and you are not silent. You tell us what you're like. You tell us what you've done. You make us promises. You speak to us. Lord, we're so thankful that you have stooped down. So thankful that you have spoken to us in words that we can comprehend. God, by your grace, would your spirit be active in this room tonight that we would delight in that fact. That it wouldn't just be a list of truths, These would be deeply cherished treasures that we walk away from this class with. Stir us up as a people. Stir us up as a church to love your word more and more. Not just because it's some book, but because in your word we find you. That's where you are. That's where you've revealed yourself. Use your spirit to accomplish that in our lives. Amen. Thank you all. Um, it's uh, been a wonderful journey for me walking through these. And um, thank you all for, for participating. You see me have questions or comments or things that the Lord has been stirring up in you as we've walked through Psalm 119? Um, I just wanted to say that uh, I love, I've
1: always loved Psalm 119 because it, word and that does show his nature and character and when I was I'm gonna cry this cry. <laughs> when I was in my twenties, I had been saved as a kid. Um God called me back to him. My head ran away. And and it was his word, just little by little, uh, I would I would see something of God and say, This is the way I need to be because I had a lot of bitterness I could have been very angry and the women's movement was big at that time and I could have gone such a different trail in you know, in my heart. And but God just little by little his word would speak at good people and reading and studying would come and find its place in my heart and you know, it's made all the difference. Mm-hmm. So I just love someone I think, because it calls us back continuously and he, he's so expressive and he goes on you know, forever. Things we feel but we can't you know, I don't to say all that
0: in big, explosive ways, you guys. Mm-hmm. So we appreciate this message. It's been wonderful. Mm, praise God, Sandy. Any other folks? Uh, yeah, Lisa. I'm just, so, <clears throat>
2: just so moved I couldn't speak. Um, I think about, like you said, how Katie gave us the exhortation from um, the darkness and focusing on the word. Taught, um, taught us to focus on the word and ministering to women. And then, um, Pastor said something so profound this morning, I could have fell on my face. It's like an aha moment some of the things that we think we know, or they may slip, or we may neglect, but it's basically instead of trying to overcome sin or weakness or whatever, is focus on his salvation. And then <clears throat> tonight, you know, you just brought out so much about his word and seeing him in his word and it's just I felt like all day today and over these weeks that and I asked God to take me to Emmaus and that's what it's been like I mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: yeah. thank you Lisa mm-hmm.
2: Each week that I come, how shallow my studies have been in God's Word and how much more that you can draw out if you take the time and, mm-hmm. and really pray to the Lord that He would open your heart to listen. And uh, I love God's Word more than anything. And um, you just challenged me and I needed that challenge at this point in my life to, to really hopefully Go back and go deeper, and uh, I just uh, I, I read God's word every day, but uh, I just uh, I need to dig deeper, and I want to dig deeper, and I need to express that to the Lord, and make that the desire of my life is to uh, learn more and more about Him, and and by that uh, I think our love for for the Lord really <coughs> Uh, this wonderful
0: song for us mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. <clears> thank <throat> you other folks
2: walk through it, verses that don't necessarily feel like they tie together and yet by really thinking them through you really brought a consistent theme and Mm -hmm. uh, outstanding. Uh, and then also for everybody here to be aware, what is it, two weeks out or tenth, is it the or not two weeks, three weeks out, the tenth of September? Rob's gonna be
0: class. Yeah Sunday
2: night, so um, be here for that if you can. We'll have more announcements until we next week to announce it. I think Tell you a little bit about that, but if you
0: can find a here, so cool. But it'll be good. Cool. Well thank you all for coming and appreciate it.